Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief. I am joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo and Senior Business Reporter Rachel Sapin. It's been another busy week in seafood. Uh, I feel like I always say that because it's true. Um, however, we appear to be kind of stuck on a couple stories and uh, we just can't get rid of them. And it's not our fault. It's the story's fault. It's, uh, it's what's happening with these companies. And things just keep getting more and more interesting for, uh, for the companies we'll talk about today. So let's start off with Atlantic Sapphire. Um, wow. Where to begin with them? Um, just off a devastating fire that completely raised their Danish facility. Um, far lower production than they expected. Um, share price collapse. Um, it's just been a calamity um, this year for Atlantic Sapphire. And on the U.S. market, um, where they play, they have um, struck relationships with a lot of different companies, or at, at the very least, um, they, they did early on. Now, um, John, tell us a bit about some of your uh, reporting. They got some good news uh, this week, or, or you broke some good news for them, and it's going to be uh, next week where it really rolls out, but they really, really, really needed this. What happened with Atlantic Sapphire? Yeah, so it's uh, it's a year since they did their first commercial uh, harvest, and when they announced that way back uh, last September, they identified a number of uh, retailers primarily that they um, were going to supply with the fish. Um, so began to take a look at that list and see how it's doing. And we discovered um, right away that uh, Publix in Florida, their headquartered in Florida and they're throughout their stores are throughout the Southeast, $45 billion retailer. So they're players. Um, they're actually going to next week have the first uh, chain-wide uh, promotion of sapphire salmon and they've got over 1200 stores so it's going to be pretty big it's really it's the first uh i think it's the first major promotion for sapphire for sure and um yeah so it's a ray a tiny ray of good news in an otherwise really damaging last few months so you know Take, take it for what it is. Now, without giving too much away, uh, we're also looking into some of their uh, other customers as well. It's, um, it's, it's not been all, all great, and they still do not, uh, or rather they, they don't have uh, all the customers that they, that they launch with. Is that correct? And like I said, we'll, we'll uh, be rolling out something on that early next week. Yeah, I, I won't go into too much detail, but um, let's just say Publix is um, – unique in in this situation because most of the others that they have dealt with or that they identified as their early adopters uh, aren't let's just say they aren't doing uh, that much uh, business it doesn't appear so yeah so I don't know where that leaves them in the end but uh, you know they they seem to be going pretty good with with uh, Publix anyways 
Yeah. Well, I think uh, I think it's um, getting to be uh, getting to be for um, for for the management there a period where they really need to show that they actually can produce, sell, uh, and get positive feedback on their product. So they they again, like I said, they really really needed this. But I you know next week is going to be interesting and to hear what the reaction is and if all the logistics play out the way that they're, um, that they're supposed to. Uh, meanwhile, in Denmark, uh, the fire that, uh, that uh, took out the facility there, there will more than likely not be any uh, rebuilding of any kind um, there in uh, Vita Sanda, Denmark, where the fire was. The fire still continues to flare up, um, in little flare-ups, but still. So it's hampered the investigation to figure out what exactly happened that caused the fire, which is very, very, very important because now Atlantic Sapphire has one facility. So it's uh, all of its uh, proverbial eggs are in one basket. So, um, but, but we still don't know. The police can't enter the area. And, uh, and as, as I said, they, they still don't know then um, without being able to get there what exactly was the cause. So meanwhile, uh, and we will be rolling some of this out in, in English as well, but uh, our sister publication, um, D, which is the largest business news publication in Norway, uh, rolled out a, a huge, huge feature on Atlantic Sapphire um, just today, um, and that'll hit uh, and is hitting the the uh, the desks and uh, coffee shops uh, around the country um, in hard copy, but it's all over the web, of course, and was uh, and and was um, pretty enlightening. Remember that most of the investors in Atlantic Sapphire are Norwegian, and so. Um, given the influence that DN has and uh, given the sort of depth of this profile, it, it'll be interesting to see how investors react when they get back to their, uh, to their um, desks on Monday and whether or not they will choose to make any sells or buys of shares. Anyway, so we'll keep on top of that. Um, let's move way over to uh, Alaska and um, catch up a bit on what is called the Bayside Program, uh, the controversial shipping route from Alaska to New Brunswick, um, which is how some of the companies, American Seafoods in particular, has been getting product over to clients there. Um, so, John, you've been point on this story. Um, Tell us a bit about what uh, what happened there. Was it it came to at least part a partial conclusion uh, this week? Yeah, the uh, the judge finally made a ruling uh, on Tuesday and denied uh, the request of American Seafoods subsidiaries, the shipping companies, um, for uh, for the restraining order, which. All this means is that the fines continue to mount and the product continues to sit and not reach customers. So um, from this point, what comes next? But looks like Clustaber and Alaska Reefer Management will refile for the injunction after they complete what is called a tariff rate, which is basically uh, details on the route itself. When they changed the route years and years ago to what has become the little choo-choo to nowhere, they didn't 
update uh, their tariff uh, filing, and that's basically what the judge ruled on. Now, uh, I don't know what this all means. If they update it and they're supposed to um, seek some sort of, you know, deal with customs, maybe on the fines, maybe for lower fines. If that all happens, is it all set? Can they go back to what they were doing? Or now does, does it bring to light this rail to nowhere, which is not in the spirit of the Jones Act um, loophole that they've been operating under for 20 years. So I don't think we're anywhere near done. We may be close to at least getting the product moving again, um, but I don't know that we've seen the end of this story uh, at all. So, so Rachel, um, what what's your take on that then? I mean, just in reading the filings, there, there wasn't a lot there. It was a pretty brief um, a brief decision that she that she made that Judge Gleason made, um, but. From my reading of it, um, there wasn't really any mention as to whether or not the railroad was going to be okay once these tariffs were paid. And there wasn't really any, at least not specifically, any indication that American and the other companies would get out of the fines that have accrued so far. Yeah, I think the fact that, as John was mentioning, um, the fact that she really stuck to uh, these companies have had a long time to update their tariff and haven't and need to um, just shows, you know, she's not letting them off the hook for the fines. And, and just the fact that she didn't grant the restraining order, you know, I think uh, it's just showing the companies that, yeah, they need to figure out what's going on. Uh, you know, they're not just going to kind of be able to explain away uh, why they haven't made that update. So yeah, I pretty much, uh, I'm thinking along the same lines as you both that, yeah, you know, it's going to be interesting um, to see if any of that comes back into play, the restraining order or the preliminary injunction, which just means, right, that they don't get additional fines, um, how all of that is going to play out and whatever uh, the subsidiaries for American end up refiling. Um, I still think they're kind of in a tough spot. Yeah, and I think you can believe um, that in addition to American filing for uh, another uh, relief order, that there's plenty of major shipping companies that are also uh, preparing some uh, cases of their own against American because I really doubt that they, uh, in fact, they've said, some of them have said, they're not going to pay these fines. They want American to pay these fines. So that's, as you said, John, I mean, this has so, so much longer to go. We'll be writing about this for a long, long time. And, you know, eventually there'll be some settlement between American and, and customs. And it certainly won't be the $400 million. It's just not going to be that level. Um, but it's going to hurt. And while it's hanging over American's head, uh, a lot of other shipping companies uh, will you know, uh, take over some of that business and, uh, and, and we'll see what happens um, from there and whether or not this whole train um, system remains in place. Well, and, and two, let's, let's just assume for a second that they do reach a settlement on, on the fines and they are allowed to keep the choo-choo to nowhere and use the system as it currently operates. 
um, are what's going to happen to these shipping companies that have been caught up in all this, um, you know, uh, in the recent few weeks. Are they going to want to even touch this stuff in the future for fear that this could all unravel once again and they could be on the, the losing end of, you know, fines or whatever it may be? I... I think there's going to be a huge problem there, a huge pushback from um, the companies that they have been using, um, you know, to, to move this product. So uh, it, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't bet either way on it, but I, it, it seems hard for me to think that that system that they've been running, the Bayside program, as it's called, will continue. And if that's the case, that it doesn't continue, then you know, what happens? Well, you know, they say it's so much more expensive to, you know, uh, ship it on a U.S. vessel down to Seattle and truck it or rail it across the U.S. Maybe that's true. I don't know all the numbers. I'm going to trust that there's some truth to that. But what happens? You know, if they have to go that route, what happens to the price of Pollock? You know, you got Russia getting more sophisticated. Does Do they have an opening in the market? I don't know. All right, let's talk about Russia. Uh, it's a nice segue because um, now that was early on. That was one of the big. Russia's always the bogeyman in in uh, the U.S. when <laughs> among politicians, whenever things are happening. The the big, the the best way to scare people is to say Russia's going to take over the the business. Um, but uh, but but our our reporter in Russia, Evgeny Vovchenko, he um, he spoke with some of the Russian Pollock producers, and they essentially said, um, okay, this was a lot of political theater, which I think most people in the industry probably know, or at least in the Pollock industry. Um, but there, there is now, they, they've said, hey, we're ready to, you know, we're not going to turn down any business. Um, but they're certainly not happy about the Bayside uh, program and all the, the, um, um, the, the, the problems that it's caused in the logistics uh, and supply chain. Because there was already pr plenty of logistics problems in, in Pollock going back to uh, COVID outbreaks um, earlier in the year. Um, so, uh, so, so when you look at the actual figures of how much Russia actually moves into the U.S., either via China or directly, I mean, it's pretty minuscule, you know, it's, it's by no means, um, going to be taking over, um, the supply of Alaska Pollock. Um, however, um, it, it is interesting to see that National Marine Fisheries Service stats showed that uh, Pollock imports from um, from China and Vietnam, um, which are mostly of Russian origin, um, were about 25 to 30% higher than in the first half of the year in 2020. And remember, that's a crazy year, right? The first half of 2020. But even when you look back a bit, um, direct imports of Russian fish, which is the real fear, they've doubled each year since 2018. Um, from very small volumes, but they've doubled each year. And that has been a major, uh, you know, federal target. That's been a major goal is, is to increase and strengthen the Russian fisheries industry. And in the Far East, that really means the Pollock industry largely. There's, there's pelagic harvest as well, but Pollock is the one that, that really, really matters, of course. 
And so um, you can, you know, there, there's always um, news kind of rolling out um, coming out of the Russian industry about the efforts that they're putting into value adding. And if there's any belief that it's not for real, you can look at the numbers in the A season, Pollock filet production increased 17%, 17% and mince production climbed 21%. So and the share of, of Pollock that was processed into fillets was over 24%, which is up 7% over the year prior. So the trends are pretty undeniable. Whether or not they continue, I guess, is a question. But then again, they're building so many new vessels and making so many upgrades to uh, shore plants, building new shore plants. I mean, Russia's for real in, in Pollock, and I'm kind of looking at this right now, but... Um, John, I know we've talked about this many, many times just in conversation about what Russia uh, is doing and what the, what the position that they could take in Global Pollock. But, um, yeah, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, it boils down a lot to me um, that Russia is investing hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in upgrading their Pollock fleet to the most modern technology there is and they're doing that with their plants as well so they're investing <laughs> the u.s side is not i mean we are not building boats anywhere near the pace that that rushes i think they got 55 uh, new vessels planned or something to that effect i'd have to check the the number but um so if you just follow that out logically for a while and assume you know, everything that you hear out of Russia is is true. I mean, they're going to have the most modern fleet on the water, and we're going to have an antiquated fleet, uh, a lot of it owned by American Seafoods, which is trying to sell itself, trying to find a new buyer. So I'm going to buy the company, and I've got to somehow figure out how to modernize the fleet I have too. You know, I mean, it's just... I don't know. It, it just seems like one's going in a progressive direction and one is kind of stagnant to, to going backward a little bit. Well, we'll keep a close eye on the Pollock Wars as they play out. There are so many different things happening in the seafood sector, and the best way for you to keep on top of it is intrafish.com. You can go to our website and find us there 24-7. We have breaking news, analysis, opinion, prices on every aspect of the industry that you could possibly think of. You can sign up for our newsletters there on any topic of your choice. If you're a subscriber, you can sign up for our new alerts. And of course, you can follow us on social media as well. We're very active on LinkedIn, but you can also track us on Twitter, Facebook, etc. All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week.